Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Peter Schiff Show. Thanks to Literati for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Literati is the subscription book club that makes it easy to get unique and interesting books delivered right to your front door. You can redeem your free trial at literati.com slash gold. Well, today is the first podcast that I am recording from Switzerland. And early this morning, I was able to finally listen on YouTube to the congressional testimony of Fed Chair Powell. He testified before the House Select Coronavirus Committee. It wasn't that long. I think the whole testimony, including the introduction by Congress and the closing remarks, the whole thing was maybe about 90 minutes. So really only about an hour of direct questioning of uh, Chair Powell. But of course, he was there to reassure everybody that everything was great, the economy was great, the recovery was moving along, and of course, inflation was under control and transitory. Although before I actually speak about what happened at the press conference, the day after, yesterday, you actually had Atlanta Fed President Bostic. He came out and he stated that it looks like the transitory inflation that the Fed was talking about it's going to take a little bit longer to transition. Initially, he said the Fed was looking for a transitory period of higher inflation that would last for two to three months. Apparently now, 
according to Bostic, the Fed is looking for that transition to last six to nine months. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but if you think about it in percentage terms, they tripled the number of months that they thought we would have higher inflation from three months to nine months. That is actually a very sizable adjustment. But you know what? It's not going to end there because it's going to be more than nine months. Now, maybe when we get around seven, eight months, maybe someone at the Fed will admit, you know, maybe it's going to take a little longer than we thought, maybe 12 to 16 months, something like that. And before long, they're going to talk about, well, maybe it's going to last one to two years, right? We've seen this before. This is how the government operates. First, they give you a very small time horizon, and then they gradually ratchet it up, you know, kind of like boiling that frog in hot water, right? You don't want to throw him into the boiling water because he's not going to stay in there. He's going to jump right out. But if you gradually turn up the temperature, he's not going to know the difference and, you know, you'll end up cooking them. You know, if you remember what happened with the coronavirus restrictions, when Donald Trump first announced these restrictions, if you remember the battle cry, it was 15 days to slow the spread, right? All we had to do was stay at home for 15 days, and that was going to bend the curve. That's all we needed to do. Now, of course, days turned into weeks, turned into months. I mean, it's been more like 15 months, let alone 15 days, and the restrictions are really still in place. You know, if Donald Trump, from the very beginning, had told the American public, look, everybody's got to be locked down for the next year, people would have said, oh, no way, we're not going to do it. But by first starting with a very small time horizon that seemed reasonable, right, once they got people used to this idea, well, then they gradually extended uh, the length of time uh, for uh, the measures. And of course, here we are today, we still haven't really completely got out from under them. I think something similar is going to be happening to the Fed with so-called transitory inflation. The period during which the inflationary transition is going to take place is going to be continuously widened. Meanwhile, the public isn't really going to realize that all we transitioned from was a period of low inflation to a period of very high inflation. Anyway, going back to Powell's Tuesday testimony, one of the interesting things about this testimony is the partisan nature of the whole farce. Because basically, you now have the Democrats who are on this committee. They're trying to use this opportunity to grandstand about how great the economy is doing because the Democrats are in charge, right? Not only do they have the White House, but they have both houses of Congress. So they own the economy and therefore they want to pretend that everything is great. So all of their questions and their statements are more congratulatory, uh, congratulating Powell on what a great job he's doing, working with former chair Janet Yellen, now Treasury Secretary and the administration, and how everything is doing great. And it's interesting in that the Democrats are the ones that are trying to play down the inflation fears. They're the ones that are trying to agree with Powell and reiterate the fact that everything is transitory 
And so we've got nothing to worry about because, of course, the Democrats don't want to admit that we have an inflation problem because that would be a blemish on this otherwise beautiful economy. And they don't want to acknowledge that blemish. So they're in the camp that it's transitory. It's the Republicans that are kind of hammering to a degree Powell, although they're not really blaming Powell for any of the high inflation. See, they're blaming Biden, but they are talking about inflation and how it's much worse than the Fed thought. They are talking about inflation as a tax, except they're blaming the entire thing on Biden and Biden's spending. In fact, they're not even really trying to blame the Fed for all the money printing. They're just blaming Biden for all the money spending. But of course, Biden couldn't be spending any money if the Fed wasn't printing it. But it seems like nobody really wants to call the Fed to task. Nobody really wants to blame Powell for anything. The Republicans simply want to blame Biden for everything. They don't want to kind of let Biden off the hook by kind of also blaming Powell. They want Biden to own all the inflation. The Democrats, of course, well, they have nobody to blame. All they want to blame is Donald Trump for problems that still exist, but they don't want to blame Powell for anything because they want to claim that everything is great. And of course, Powell himself doesn't want to accept any responsibility whatsoever for any of the inflation at all, right? Because he is coming up with all sorts of explanations for the inflation, right? All kinds of factors, you know, generally related to the reopening of the economy. But he listed a number of factors that he said were contributing to the increased consumer prices that we're seeing now that we've been experiencing. But after he went through all of the factors that he believes are contributing, all of these related to supply. The only nod to demand had to do with, hey, people are coming out of hibernation, right? The economy is reopening, so people are now wanting to spend money, whereas before they weren't spending because they were staying home. But most of the contributory factors to this temporary surge in prices, according to Powell, all related to supply problems. But the biggest problem that Powell completely ignores, the elephant in this living room, is the demand created by the Fed. All of the money printing, that is the problem. But Powell doesn't even acknowledge that it's played a role, right? He wants to completely blame the private sector for any increases in prices and absolve the Fed of any blame. In fact, it doesn't, he doesn't even absolve the Fed because he doesn't even indicate that the Fed is in any way responsible for any of these problems. And again, none of the congressmen, not even the Republicans, will point a finger at the Fed and challenge Powell and get him to accept some responsibility for the inflation that we're seeing because after all, inflation is everywhere and anywhere a monetary phenomenon. That is the famous quote from Milton Friedman. And so if inflation is anywhere and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, well, then how can the Federal Reserve not play a role in inflation when it's the only one that creates the money? But, you know, another real problem I had with the testimony, particularly from the congressional Republicans, is the sheer hypocrisy of all this, because 
they want to call out Biden's role in contributing to this inflation because of all of the spending, right? All the deficit spending that is being financed by the Fed. And of course, that's why it's a problem. When you hear the Republicans talking about Biden's spending contributing to inflation, it's because the spending is not paid for with taxes. That's what makes it inflationary because the Fed has to print the money. Now, of course, they're not advocating cuts to government spending. What they want is for the government not to spend the additional stimulus money that Biden is calling for or the additional infrastructure money. But none of the Republicans are actually advocating real cuts to government spending, the type of cuts that would actually be necessary uh, to rein in this inflation. But the real hypocrisy is that they don't accept any responsibility for the massive deficit spending that occurred under President Trump. President Trump was beating up the Fed for not printing enough money. He was chastising the Fed for raising interest rates. He demanded that rates be reduced. In fact, he was actually demanding negative interest rates. The Fed never delivered on negative rates, but they did bring them back to zero. Trump was demanding more QE, bigger QE, right? And none of the Republicans were calling out Donald Trump when Donald Trump was demanding that the Fed pursue a more inflationary monetary policy, not a peep from the congressional Democrats, when Donald Trump was ramping up the deficits, when he was increasing government spending at the same time he was decreasing government revenue and and blowing up the deficit, none of the Republicans were against it. In fact, they almost all voted for it. So apparently, if a Republican president wants the Fed to print a bunch of money to finance Republican deficits, well, that doesn't cause inflation. But when the Federal Reserve prints a bunch of money to finance Democratic deficits, well, then that's a problem. Well, you're a hypocrite when you do that. And that is why the Republicans really have no credibility on this issue right now because they gave Donald Trump a pass. And, you know, it's not just on the inflation where you see all this outrage coming from the Republicans about the deficits under Biden and how they're contributing to inflation and higher prices, but complete silence when the same type of monetary policy was used to finance Trump's deficits. But look at what they're now saying about the unemployment benefits, because this was another big theme of this hearing where you had a lot of Republicans who were specifically criticizing the federal extended unemployment benefits where you're paying people not to work and pointing out that this is the reason that we still have so many unemployed people yet so many unfilled jobs. We have a record number of job openings, but nobody wants to take those jobs because the government is paying them more money not to take those jobs than the employers are willing to take them to do the jobs, right? And so the Republicans are criticizing these policies, the Democrats are defending them. But here is the problem. It was the Republicans who started the program. The initial $600 supplement, that was in there when Trump was president. So Senate Republicans, the Republicans controlled the Senate, and they passed COVID relief 
that included a $600 weekly federal supplement. Donald Trump, a Republican president, signed that COVID relief package even though it included a provision to pay people not to work. And it's not like people couldn't have anticipated this outcome. In fact, there was, I think, maybe one Republican or a couple of Republicans in the House. I don't think any in the Senate. But there were a couple in the House that tried to introduce a bill that would at least limit the weekly benefits in unemployment to no more than the individual was earning when they had a job. So if you were getting $500 a week in pay, that your additional federal supplement could only max you out at the $500 a week that you used to earn because a couple of these Republicans said, this is ridiculous. We can't pay people more money not to work than they're going to earn if they do work because then we create a powerful incentive for people not to work. So you had a couple of Republicans that pointed this out to the House, to the Senate, that, hey, there's a big moral hazard here. Why don't we at least limit the benefits to 100% of what the people used to earn when they had jobs, and they wouldn't even get a vote on it. They couldn't even get it out of committee. So no Republicans were really willing to commit to limiting these supplemental benefits to make somebody whole 100% from what they used to have when they had a job. But even then, it was... Not enough. I, I mentioned this at the time. I mean, first of all, before these House Republicans even talked about introducing this bill, I criticized it from day one. As soon as I heard about this $600, I said immediately, well, this is going to make the unemployment problem much worse because nobody's going to want to work when we're making it this lucrative not to work. I mean, if we're paying people all this money not to work, I mean, how could you blame somebody for not accepting the offer, not working and taking the money? But I also pointed out back then that since most people prefer leisure to work, right? after all, your employer pays you to do the work. You don't pay your employer to allow you to work. People are working for money you know, because they need it, not because it's fun or because it's enjoyable. You know, For the most part, it's a trade-off. You're giving your employer something of value, your labor, and they're giving you money. But when you're giving your employer your labor, you're, you're giving up your leisure, and that leisure has a lot of value. And so I pointed out that even if you limited the benefit to 100% of what people earned when working, that wasn't enough. That in and of itself is a huge moral hazard. You have to make sure that unemployment benefits do not make up 100% of the lost wages because then there is still the incentive not to go back to work, assuming that rational people prefer leisure to work, right? They prefer a vacation than having to show up every day and work, right? That's why people look forward to the weekends, right? It's TGI Friday. Thank God it's Friday. It's not thank God it's Monday. Nobody is happy about a Monday because they have to work all the way throughout the week. You're happy on Friday because now you've got your weekend. Well, the government made every day a weekend by replacing your paycheck with unemployment benefits. So I said back then, if you really wanted to make sure there wasn't a big moral hazard, you have to really reduce that benefit so that there is a big value financially to taking a job versus collecting unemployment. So even that wouldn't have worked. 
But my point in bringing this up now is to mention the hypocrisy because the Republicans were perfectly willing to sign on to this bill when Trump was in office and he was the president and they controlled the Senate. They were happy to create this moral hazard. It now is only a problem when the Democrats are in charge. Well, if it wasn't for the Republicans, the Democrats wouldn't be able to extend these benefits because the only reason the benefits exist is because the Republicans created them. So you can't basically create a weapon, hand it to the Democrats, and then blame them for using it. The time for the Republicans to object to these benefits and the moral hazard of paying people not to work was back when they were first proposed. That's when they should have been rejected. But of course, no, 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 you know, they didn't want to do that. An election was coming up. So politics were more important than economics. But now that the election is over, they've lost, they're in the minority, and what they're saying means nothing. Well, of course, now they're going to try to stand on principle. But when the principle could have done something, when President Trump could have vetoed this bill, when Senate Republicans could have refused to sign on to it, right, when they're words could have actually been turned into action, they were silent. They're only talking about it now when the talk is meaningless. If you've always said you wanted to read more, this summer is yours for the taking. You can empower your inner reader with literati book clubs where you can read alongside the world's most inspiring authors and leaders. Literati delivers their monthly book picks straight to your door so you can spend less time finding a good book and more time actually reading one. Whether you're enjoying Beach Reads with Ellen Hildebrand or exploring mystic realms with Joseph Campbell scholars, you'll find their brilliant insights on the Literati app. Authors, leaders, and activists all spark lively conversations in 12 unique book clubs, engaging a diverse community of readers from all around the world. This means that you can talk about Stephen Curry's favorite books with Stephen Curry, for real. I joined Richard Branson's club, and I'm looking forward to receiving the July selection, Happiness. They also host exclusive interviews with the authors themselves, where you can ask your biggest questions and then get insider answers you can't find in any other book clubs. All book club members can shop the entire Literati library at discounts that are so steep they'll look like cliffhangers, with many books over 50% off. And you can move freely between clubs, or you can use the standard membership to access everything and choose the books you want delivered. So reimagine what a book club can be. Redeem your free trial at literati.com gold. Head to literati.com gold to learn more and read more with Literati. That's literati.com gold. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Anyway, let me talk a little bit about the Q&A, because that's where Powell uh, did most of his discussion. His prepared remarks were kind of short uh, and pretty much predictable. So the key was to look at the exchanges 
And again, this was mostly political grandstanding where the Democrats are saying everything is great and the Republicans are saying it's not great and blaming it all on Biden, but not pointing any of the blame on Powell himself. So one of the the questions had to do with economic disparity and why we have this big disparity in outcomes, particularly, you know, minorities uh, are not doing as well in this economy. And so we don't have an equal outcome. And this is a big problem. And and what is the Fed going to do about it? And of course, there's very little, if anything, the Fed could do about it. Although the one thing the Fed could do about it is stop adding to the problem if you look at the disparity as a problem, because the Fed is a major driving factor. Now, what Powell said, the way he was going to help address this to the degree that he could was by focusing on the employment part of its mandate, meaning the Fed has this dual mandate, price stability and maximum employment. And so in order to reduce the economic disparities out there, he said that Powell is going to focus more on the jobs and employment because he thinks that's the way to reduce the disparity is to make sure that more unemployed people get jobs. But the reality is by ignoring inflation and thinking that the way to resolve the disparity is by focusing on employment, that is just going to make the disparity problem even greater because the way the Fed focuses on employment is by creating inflation, by keeping interest rates artificially low, by stimulating the economy. But all that does is add to the disparity because it doesn't create jobs. You don't create jobs by creating money. You don't create jobs with inflation. Inflation helps to widen this disparity gap because what they're doing is they're propping up asset prices that benefit the rich while at the same time suppressing real economic growth that would benefit the poor and the middle class. They are helping to move money from Main Street to Wall Street. If the money was still in Main Street, if we had higher interest rates and capital investment, that would help grow the economy and lift real wages. Instead, we shift that money so that it can be used to finance financial speculation on Wall Street. None of this benefits Main Street. The rich get richer because they own the assets and the poor get the shaft because inflation While it drives up the assets that the poor don't own, it also drives up the price of all the goods and services that the poor need to buy or the middle class need to buy. So by ignoring inflation, by creating inflation to supposedly focus on employment, the Fed is actually making the problem worse. It's making the rich richer, the middle class and the poor poorer. That is the biggest irony of the whole conversation is that the Fed is partially to blame for what the Democrats want the Fed to solve. The Democrats want the Fed to solve a problem that the Fed helped create. And they want them to solve it by doing more of the very policies that created it in the first place. Now, another question he was getting was about infrastructure. Because, you know, the Democrats have this infrastructure bill where they include just about everything in infrastructure. And they're trying to get Powell to acknowledge that the Democrats' definition of infrastructure is correct, but he really doesn't want to do that. And then when they try to put words into Powell's mouth, Powell kind of says, well, I guess that's okay. So, you know, he never wants to contradict what any of the politicians are saying because he doesn't want to risk getting on anybody's bad side. But what nobody asked Powell about infrastructure, and of course, Powell didn't volunteer this information, nobody said, 
you know, regardless of how you want to define infrastructure and what you want to include, the question is, can we actually afford to spend this money on infrastructure? Because then the answer would be no, we're broke. How are we supposed to afford new infrastructure spending when we're already broke? We have this emergency, we have this pandemic, so the government is already spending all this money trying to bail everything out. How do we have extra money to spend on infrastructure, even if in the long run, that infrastructure is going to ultimately bear fruit and produce you know, positive returns, which we don't know, but maybe it will. But we can't afford to do it right now because we have other things that are supposedly more important. No, they, they believe that the way to stimulate the economy is by spending this money on infrastructure. But no, that doesn't stimulate the economy. That just creates a bigger burden for the economy to bear. And if the economy is weak right now, we can't afford to spend money on infrastructure, what we need to do is wait for the economy to be strong. And then in theory, we would be able to do it. Or at least we pay back a lot of the debt that we've accumulated for consumption before we actually have some real savings that can be devoted to legitimate infrastructure. But also along those lines, Powell was asked about the debt and whether it's a problem. I think it was a Republican asking about this big surge in deficit spending and is this a problem? And, you know, the Fed has acknowledged and Powell has acknowledged that the debt is unsustainable. So does he see a problem? And of course, Powell immediately said, look, look, you know, it's not a problem right now. I mean, yes, it's unsustainable, but it's been unsustainable for a long time. So that's nothing new. So, you know, we don't want to blame uh, the Democrats or Biden for an unsustainable debt because it's been unsustainable for a long time. And so there's nothing different now, right? He doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that the debts are now off the charts. So if it was unsustainable before Biden, well, it's even more so now. He did not want to acknowledge that. But what he then did say is he specifically said, yes, it is a unsustainable problem that's been around for a long time. But he said now is not the time to do anything about it. He said the time to do something about this problem is when we have a really strong economy, when we have low unemployment, that's when we want to tackle this debt problem. But now, you know, when the economy needs stimulus, although, you know, he talked about how great the economy is, how strong the economy is. Well, if it's so strong, why does it need stimulus? He keeps contradicting himself. But he thinks that the economy needs stimulus now. We still have too many unemployed people. And so now is not the time to deal with this ticking time bomb with the debt. But he does want us to deal with it at some point in the future when the economy is strong and when all these unemployed people have jobs, then we can tackle the, the debt. But the problem is, a couple of years ago, when Donald Trump was president, Powell agreed with the Republicans and he agreed with Trump that the economy was great that the economy was booming, that the economy had never been stronger, right? Donald Trump was saying, we've got the strongest economy in the history of the world. And Powell wasn't disagreeing with any of those statements when Republicans reiterated them in hearings in which he was testifying. They talked about the lowest unemployment ever, record low unemployment for African-Americans, record low unemployment for women. Powell was agreeing with all this. He said everything was great. Yet not one time during any of his congressional testimonies 
Did Powell ever say, hey, you know, let's do something about the deficit, guys. we got a really strong economy now. We've got really low unemployment. Now is the time to tackle this deficit problem. No. Powell said nothing about it because it's never the time. This is the same BS answer that they always give. When the economy is weak, they say now's not the time to do anything about the deficit. We need to wait till the economy is strong. But then when the economy is strong, they never want to do anything about the deficit then either. Here's the problem. The only reason the economy is strong is because it's phony strength. It looks strong because we run up the deficit. We can't do anything about the deficit because that will make the phony strong economy weak. So if the only way we get the economy to look strong is by running huge deficits, well, how are we going to attack the deficit problem without ruining the economy, right? The phony economy. So they know that any recovery that's built on a foundation of deficit spending The government could never do anything about the deficit because then they're dismantling the foundation of the economy and it collapses. So it's all a lie. They never have any intention to do anything about the deficit when times are good or when times are bad. The only time they're ever going to do anything about a deficit is when there's a crisis. Now, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, a crisis is coming. Although probably the funniest exchanges had to do specifically with these extended unemployment benefits because Powell does not want to admit that these extended unemployment benefits are contributing to the problem of people not working. Because obviously this is a big program that now the Democrats are in favor of. They want to keep continuing these programs that the Republicans put in place. Right now the Republicans don't like them anymore, as I said, but the Democrats want to continue doing it. So Powell doesn't want to say anything that would antagonize any of these Democrats because now there's a love fest going on between the Democrats and Powell. So he doesn't want to you know, say anything political. But in the Q&A, when one of the Republican congressmen said to Powell, well, don't you think paying people not to work may be a contributing factor in their decision not to work. And he kind of said, well, it's possible. But then he said, we'll know soon because those benefits are going to expire. And then when they expire, we'll see if the people who we were paying not to work now go back to work when they're no longer getting paid. But the problem is, what if they don't expire? What if they renew them? Because that's exactly what the Democrats want to do. The Democrats don't want to let them expire. And so by Powell's own words, we're not going to know if it was paying people not to work that contributed because they're not going to expire. And so one of the congressmen tried to get Powell to admit that he thinks it would be a good thing to let them expire so we can know for sure whether or not they're a contributing factor. And then he refused to answer the question. He doesn't want to commit. But it's so obvious that this is a problem. I mean, I I identified this problem from the very beginning, but it's not that I'm so smart to know this. I mean, it's obvious. It's just that people in government must be that dumb not to understand that this was going to happen. In fact, I think they all understood that it was going to happen, but they didn't care because all they cared about was their own reelection and giving people something for nothing, which in this case was extended paid vacations. But, you know, when you listen to what Powell was saying... He had all kinds of explanations for why people were choosing not to work, right? He didn't want to say, well, yes, 
it's because of this money they're getting for not working. Powell was saying there are other reasons. He said people are afraid of getting COVID, so they don't want to go back to work. Or the schools are still closed, so they want to stay home with their kids, so they don't want to go back to work. And he mentioned that also people are now holding out longer to get the ideal job, right? They're not just taking the first job that comes their way. People are now taking longer because they really want to get the right job. And so it's taking them a long time to pick one. They're, they're not beggars anymore. Uh, they can be more choosy. But the one thing that all of this has in common is the unemployment benefits. It is the extra large unemployment benefits that are creating all these problems. You see, yes, people are afraid of getting COVID, but they still need a job. They need to pay the rent. They need uh, to put food on the table. There's a lot of money that they need. And so they have to overcome those fears. Just like, you know, I could get into a car accident when I drive to work, but you know what? I still have to go to work. And so that's a trade-off. You know, even before COVID, Anybody went to work, you'd always risk catching something. I mean, there's something that goes around every flu season, whatever. I mean, you could always catch something, but you know what? You can't just stay at home in isolation because you need money. But when the government gives you an alternative, hey, you don't need money. We're going to give you the money. Well, that's shit. Why go to work, right? Why take a chance I'm going to get COVID when I'm going to get paid anyway? If you're not going to get paid anyway, well, then I'm going to take a chance on getting COVID because I need the paycheck. So I'm willing to take that risk because of the greater reward. But if there's no longer a reward because you get your paycheck anyway, whether you take the risk or not, why take it? Same thing with schools. My kids are in school. Well, I would figure out how to do something about that and still keep my job. Maybe I hire somebody to watch my kids or people would organize to take care of kids because they need the money of the job. But once you say, well, you don't need the job, we're gonna give you the money even if you don't go to work, problem solved. I'll just stay home with my kids because the government made it easy because they're giving me this money. And obviously that's what's going on with people who are holding out for the ideal job. When your unemployment benefits are low, you'll take any job that you can get because you need money. But if the government is giving you this lucrative deal to stay unemployed, well, sure, you can hold out for the dream job because what's the penalty to turn down a job that's not ideal? Nothing, because you keep getting this money and so you can wait for the ideal job. And you have all these Democrats that even think that this is a good thing, that somehow it's better if people can stay unemployed until they get the perfect job, right? Because we don't want people taking less than ideal jobs. So this is a good thing that they can hold out for the best job. But you know what? Just because you take a crappy job, that doesn't mean you can't get a better job when one comes along. This is all nonsense. That the job that you take is a job that you're stuck with in fact, I would argue that taking any job, even if it's not ideal, means that you have a better chance of getting a better job than just sitting at home. Because just going out to work, being out on the job, you know, being out in the world, you're going to run into people. You're going to meet people. You may find out about better job opportunities. You might run into somebody with a better job opportunity. Or you might get promoted in the same company. So you take a crappy job just to get a job, and now you're there and you know, then you get promoted into a better job. You're not going to get an ideal job sitting at home in your underwear watching Netflix. That's not the way to get the ideal job. And I think employers too, if I was choosing between two people, one person that took a crappy job 
but it took a job and is working and is now applying for a better job versus somebody who is still unemployed, I would rather hire the guy that was willing to take a, a crappy job that wasn't such a prima donna, right? That was willing to do anything to make ends meet to feed his family, not some prima donna that stayed at home and said, oh, that job is beneath me. Oh, no, I can't do that. Or I got a college degree. I'm not going to wait tables. No, I'd rather hire the guy with a college degree who was waiting tables between jobs because that's the kind of person that you want to hire. That's the kind of go-getter, the guy that's not going to be afraid you know, to get their hands dirty and they're going to work. They're going to give you their all. The person who's just sitting at home, right, waiting for this ideal job, that's not the guy. So all of this is nonsense. But all three of these factors that Powell talked about that are keeping people from jobs, they all have one thing in common. If you take away the extended unemployment benefits, none of these problems would be an issue and all these people would be at work. The only reason they're not working is because the government is paying them so much money not to work. And again, the Republicans have no right to criticize this policy because it's their policy. They created it. Donald Trump signed it and he was happy to do it. One person asked Powell if he expected uh, the inflation to be you know, like the 1970s. And of course, he's going to say no, right? Because he's talking about how this is transitory. Uh, But Powell came out and said, no, the Fed does not expect inflation to be anything like it was in the 1970s. Well, of course. I mean, what do you expect them to say? Right. I mean, the Fed never expects anything bad to happen. Everything bad takes them by surprise. Do you think the Fed expected the inflation of the 1970s during the 1960s? Of course not. In fact, they downplayed all the risks. My father testified before the Senate Committee on Money and Banking in 1968 against the removal of gold backing. He was the only person that predicted that if we went off the gold standard, we'd have high inflation, that the dollar would go down and prices would go up. The Secretary of the Treasury and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve, who testified at the same committee, not on the same day, but at the same committee as my dad, their testimony was the opposite That if we just go off the gold standard, the dollar will rise, the price of gold will fall, uh, and we'll have even lower inflation once we decouple the dollar from gold. That somehow gold was holding the dollar down, and if we liberated the dollar from this gold anchor, it would be even stronger, and so we would have even less inflation by going off the gold standard than we would have had staying on it. Of course, pure nonsense, just trying to sell the public a bill of goods, which unfortunately the public bought. And we went off the gold standard. And again, when we went off the gold standard, Nixon said it was temporary. Why did he say it was temporary? Well, you know, for the same reason they said 15 days to get coronavirus under control. The same reason the Fed said subprime problems were contained, right? The same reason they're now saying inflation is transitory. The same reason now that they're gradually increasing the transition period. Because they never want to be honest. They never want to tell the truth. They always want to get that camel's nose under the tent. So it doesn't surprise me that the Fed doesn't expect inflation. Just like the Fed didn't expect the financial crisis of 2008. The Fed didn't expect the Great Recession. In fact, in the summer of 2008, when we were already six, seven months in to the worst recession since the Great depression, the Fed said, we're not even going to have a recession. They didn't even expect a recession, even though we were already in the Great Recession. 
the Fed didn't expect the financial crisis right up until the day that we had the financial crisis. So who cares what the Fed expects? They don't have a history of expecting problems. They have a history of being blindsided by problems, especially the problems that their own policies create. But unfortunately, the best statement was made by a Republican congressman, Dr. Mark Green from Tennessee. And he basically got it completely right when he said inflation is a tax and he specifically blamed inflation on deficit spending, which is monetized by the Fed. So he specifically talked about all the Fed money printing and the deficit spending as being contributory factors to inflation. And of course, if you are labeling inflation a tax, well, only the government is in a position to impose taxes. So when you correctly refer to inflation as a tax, you are also acknowledging that the source of that tax is the U.S. government. Because if it's not a tax, then it wouldn't be coming from government. So after I heard him make these comments, I got really excited about, oh my God, this guy's going to really ask a good question of Powell. Because up until this guy, nobody had been critical of Powell. Every Republican was criticizing Biden, uh, but none of them wanted to put any of the blame on Powell. And so when he got around to his question, the only questions he asked was on whether or not the dollar would maintain its status as the reserve currency. And of course, Powell shrugged that off. Yes, of course, it's going to stay the reserve currency. Uh, Nothing to worry about. And then he asked him about the rising cost of interest on the national debt. And, you know, if he's worried about the U.S. government not being able to pay its bills if interest rates ever normalize, uh, which, of course, is a good question, but it's not the question I was hoping he was going to ask based on how he set it up. Now, of course, once you give him a softball question like that, well, it's easy for Powell to hit it because he simply said, oh, of course, I see no problems in the foreseeable future of the federal government being able to pay its bills. Now, of course, I'm not really sure what the foreseeable future is, but according to Powell, he's not worried that the federal government will ever have a problem paying its bills, which is true, because the federal government doesn't have to pay its bills because the Fed pays it for them. The Fed prints money. The only time the federal government is going to have to worry about paying its bills is if we have a responsible Federal Reserve that allows interest rates to go up, because if interest rates go up, the government can't pay its bills and it has to default. The only reason it's not defaulting is because the Federal Reserve continues to give them an easy way out. And that is why Powell doesn't see any pressure on the federal government. That's why he knows in the foreseeable future, the federal government will be able to pay its bills because Powell knows that we're not going to have a responsible Federal Reserve that actually forces some discipline on the government and allows interest rates to rise. But of course, even normal interest rates wouldn't be the problem. I mean, if interest rates just got to 2 or 3%, the federal government can't pay its bills, let alone reverting to the mean. So if Powell was going to answer that question honestly, how can you not be worried? Given the enormity of the debt right now, and given how much it would cost to service that debt if interest rates returned to normal, how can you not be worried about the federal government's ability to pay the debt? 
The only way that you're not worried is if you know interest rates are never going to return to normal. And how does Powell know that? Because he won't let them. And he knows none of his successors are going to let them either. That's why Powell is so confident that the federal government can keep paying its bills. It's because the Federal Reserve will never allow interest rates to normalize or get anywhere near normal, which would force the government into default, which means that we're going to be at 0% indefinitely because that's really the only interest that the government could afford. And even that is getting to be too high given how much debt there is, which is why the Federal Reserve has to pretend that the inflation is transitory because if they admit it's not, then they have to do anything about it and they can't do anything about it because if they actually did anything about it, then the federal government couldn't pay its bills. That's the irony. If this inflation turns out not to be transitory and they have to raise interest rates, then the government can't pay its bills. In fact, one of the congressional Republicans asked Jerome Powell if he thought 5% inflation was acceptable. And Powell actually answered that question, no, it's not acceptable. Now, of course, we actually already have inflation that is higher than 5%, but of course, Powell thinks that's transitory. So the reality of the question was, would the Fed accept an inflation rate of 5% that was not transitory because it's already accepting a 5% inflation rate that it believes is transitory because the Fed is not doing anything to make sure that this transitory 5% inflation isn't permanent. The Fed is basically rolling the dice and betting everything that it is transitory because Powell has just said that he's not going to tolerate permanent 5% inflation. He's tolerating 5% inflation now because he's confident that it's transitory. But he did now make clear that 5% inflation is unacceptable. But what I really wish would have happened again is that either this congressman or some other congressman might have put Powell on the spot. Okay, Chair Powell, 5% inflation is unacceptable. How long can we take transitory 5% inflation before that becomes unacceptable? And if it's unacceptable, then what are you willing to do to prevent it from happening? And more importantly, what will the consequences be for the economy if you're forced to fight 5% or higher inflation? And is the Fed willing to stand by and allow all those negative ramifications? If the economy is tanking, if the stock market is tanking, if the U.S. government is unable to pay its bills and it's forced to default, will the Fed stand by and allow all that bad stuff to happen while it is combating what it just admitted or what Powell just admitted is an unacceptable 5% inflation that the Fed will not tolerate. The question is, will the Fed tolerate the consequences of doing something about 5% inflation? Nobody asked that question because, of course, nobody even wants to hear the answer to that question. And the Fed is certainly not willing to answer that question because it knows nobody can handle the truth. There was... A, I think a couple of points made, but no direct questions asked about Fed policy. Because some of the Republicans said, look, we know the Fed has the tools to fight inflation, but we hope they don't use them because, you know, it could be very difficult, like when Volcker was president. So we want Congress to do something now by cutting spending so that we can relieve the pressure on all this money printing. But I wish somebody had asked Powell 
If the Fed does have to raise interest rates to fight inflation, then what? And is the Fed going to turn off the pressure if it creates a problem? If the Fed jacks interest rates way up to fight inflation and then the government can't pay its bills, what is the Fed going to do? Is the Fed going to start the presses back up or is the Fed going to allow the government to default on its bills? You know, this Congressman Green, what was disappointing is after he went through explaining that inflation was a tax created by the government spending borrowed money and the Federal Reserve monetizing those debts by printing money, when he basically said inflation was the byproduct or direct result of the Federal Reserve monetizing deficits spending by the U.S. government, he did not then put Powell to the question and say, don't you accept some of this responsibility? Isn't all this money printing causing inflation? And is the Fed prepared to stop printing money to fight inflation? Don't you accept some of this responsibility? How can you point fingers at everybody else without accepting your own responsibility? How can you not look in the mirror and recognize your own reflection when it comes to inflation? But no, he did not want to put Powell on the spot. For some reason, everybody wants to handle Powell with kit gloves. Although I think, again, that since the Republicans want to put all of the blame for the inflation on Biden, they don't want to place any of that blame on the Fed because if they blame the Fed for the inflation, then to some degree, they're letting Biden off the hook. So they want to give the Fed a pass and they want to blame it all on Biden. And again, another reason is if they're going to blame the Fed for monetizing Biden's deficits, don't they also have to blame the Fed for monetizing Trump's deficits? And they don't want to do that. They want to somehow pretend that deficit spending by a Democrat is worse than deficit spending by a Republican. And so they don't want to send any mixed messages by blaming the Fed. But somebody really needs to blame the Fed because the Fed is the responsible party under both administrations. Because without the Fed's willingness to monetize these deficits and to make it easy for the presidents and Congress to run big deficits without any immediate consequences, it's the Fed that is the more responsible party, especially since the Fed is supposed to be independent. The Fed is supposed to be the adult in the room, the chaperone. The Fed is supposed to take the punch bowl away, not spike the punch bowl. So personally, yes, I think that Trump is responsible. I think Biden is responsible. I blame Trump at the time because I'm not just hiding behind politics. But I think that the Federal Reserve bears more of the blame both when Trump was president and now that Biden is president. If the Federal Reserve did its job, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans would have been in a position to spend all this borrowed money because it would have been impossible. Rates would have shot up a long time ago and those higher rates would have imposed fiscal discipline on government. But because the Fed did not allow that mechanism, then they were undisciplined. It's like the Fed was the chaperone at the party, but then he fell asleep. And not only did he not remove the punch bowl before he fell asleep, he spiked the punch bowl. So what do you expect, right? It's, it's not because you have a bunch of drunk high school kids who are doing crazy things. The problem is the adult 
who was supposed to make sure that those high school kids didn't get drunk so that they wouldn't do crazy things. It's that responsible adult who shirked their responsibility that you need to blame. Just like, you know, I was saying when, when uh, George Bush was talking about how Wall Street got drunk during the financial crisis and everybody kept talking about how Wall Street got drunk, but nobody wanted to point a finger at the bartender. Okay, everybody was drunk. Where'd they get the alcohol? Who liquored them up? It was Alan Greenspan. Without Greenspan pouring all that alcohol, Wall Street wouldn't have been drunk and they wouldn't have owned these subprime mortgages. We wouldn't have had the housing bubble. We wouldn't have had the financial crisis. Sure, the government played a part. I'm not going to absolve the government for its wrongdoing, but I'm going to put more of the blame on the Federal Reserve because they were the institution that was specifically supposed to make sure this didn't happen. It's like the Federal Reserve is the fire department. They're supposed to put out fires. Instead, the Federal Reserve is lighting the fires. Then it pretends to put them out and takes credit, except it puts them out with gasoline and you think the fires are going out, but they're actually coming back bigger than ever. Then I think the the funniest part about this whole congressional hearing is that Maxine Waters is the chairperson for the committee. And she didn't even show up until the end. And she basically was there to ask the last question except she didn't even ask a question. She just gave a long statement and then they concluded the hearing. But basically, all she did was sing praises on Jerome Powell. You're doing a great job. We love you. We appreciate you. We love the fact that you're working so well with our great Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. In fact, one of the reasons that Maxine Waters praised Powell for being such a great Fed chairman was that he wanted to go bold, go big uh, with these programs. And that was not typical, she said, of Fed chairmen who are normally more prudent, they're more careful about spending or debt. She thought it was great that Jerome Powell wasn't practical at all, that, that he didn't care about the spending, that it didn't matter, that it was go big, like forget about what it costs, doesn't matter how much we borrow, it doesn't matter how much we print. She liked that about Powell. Again, yes, that's exactly what high school students would like about a chaperone. They want a chaperone that pours alcohol in the punch and then goes and takes a nap so they can do whatever they want, right? They don't want the chaperone that actually keeps the alcohol out of the punch and that keeps a close eye on everybody to prevent things from getting out of hand. So here you have Powell winning praise from Maxine Waters just the way that a bad chaperone is going to win praise from the kids in high school. I don't want the chaperone to be praised by the kids. I want the chaperone to be praised by the parents. Hey, the parents are the ones that think the chaperone who is unpopular with the kids is the one that's doing a good job, not the one that's popular with the kids. So when you see a Fed chairman that is so popular with the politicians, you know he's doing a bad job. Do you think Paul Volcker was popular? Not at all. I mean, he was public enemy number one. They were basically burning him in effigy on Capitol Hill. The only ally he had was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan stood by Paul Volcker. I mean, that's one of the reasons that he was a good president. You think Donald Trump would have stood by Paul Volcker? Not at all. I mean, he couldn't even stand by Powell when he raised interest rates a couple of times. I mean, he couldn't even stand by Powell for 2% interest rates, let alone, you know, the 20% interest rates that we had under Volcker 
and Reagan stood by him the whole time. No, Trump would have turned on him immediately, just like he turned on Powell, and Powell wasn't even close uh, to being Volcker. And then after she went on praising Powell for being so reckless and irresponsible, uh, in contrast to other central bankers, although I'm not really sure which central banker she was referring to, because the last time we actually had a responsible Fed chairman was Paul Volcker. But then she went on to talk about how we really need to raise the minimum wage, right? I mean, during this whole panel, they're talking about how employers can't get workers to get off unemployment, to give up those benefits and take jobs. Obviously, one of the things these employers are trying is offering more money, right? They're definitely offering people more than minimum wage to come back to work. The problem is they're not taking the offers because the offers are still not high enough to compensate for the loss of all that leisure, which is a very valuable commodity for most people. So obviously raising the minimum wage isn't going to do anything about that problem. But according to Maxine Waters, well, there's still some people who are working for minimum wage, and so we need to raise the minimum wage. Well, to the extent that some people are working for minimum wage and we raise that minimum wage, some of those people may no longer be employed. Employers are going to pay as much as they need to pay for the transaction to make sense. So if they can profitably hire somebody at $10 an hour, they'll do it. If they can profitably hire somebody at $15 an hour, they'll do it. But if they can't profitably hire somebody at $10 an hour, and right now the minimum wage is $7.25, and they've hired somebody, and they're paying them $7.25 or maybe $8 or $9, if you mandate a $15 minimum wage, all that's going to do is cause that person who had a job at $8 or $9 to lose their job because the employer is not going to pay more than the economic viability of that particular job if there is demand and if they need to and they can afford to pay the higher wages they're already doing it and of course one of the things that Maxine Waters also said was that she's not worried about inflation specifically said I agree with you Chair Powell you're correct not to worry about inflation I'm not worried about inflation either which again is ironic because Maxine Waters claims that she cares about the little people well, the little people are the ones that get hurt the most by inflation. She is advocating that the Fed continue to create inflation because she's not worried about it and not even realizing that inflation is the biggest problem for the people that she supposedly represents, even if they get an increase in the minimum wage. If inflation erodes away the purchasing power of that higher minimum wage, what difference does it make? In fact, inflation is already eroding the purchasing power of the existing minimum wage. If Maxine Waters wants a higher minimum wage, why is she congratulating the Federal Reserve, Powell, for pursuing policies that are destroying the value of the current minimum wage? People's real incomes are being lowered. Real wages are going down right now. The value of the minimum wage is going down because of all the inflation that is being created. And if we simply raise the minimum wage to try to compensate for that inflation, it's never going to be enough. It's always going to be like a dog chasing its tail that can never catch its tail. Because we create inflation, cost of living goes up, well then we raise the minimum wage. That actually helps contribute to the higher prices. And now prices go up and now we need even more minimum wage hikes. But you never catch up. Wages never catch up to other prices 
Meanwhile, we keep pricing more and more people out of the labor market and creating a bigger and bigger pool of permanently unemployed workers. But of course, that's fine with Maxine Waters because all of the permanently unemployed people will always vote for the Democrats because the Democrats are the ones that then perpetually support them by giving them the welfare benefits that they need because they no longer have jobs because the government made that impossible. And they can always blame the lack of jobs on the free market when the real reason for the lack of jobs is government. But the voters who are now hooked on government programs don't realize that and it's too risky for them to take a chance. They won't vote for anybody who potentially might remove that safety net, which has now become their hammock.